Welcome to Policy Vibe, a new podcast hosted by the Triangle Community Coalition that will help our members familiarize themselves with our local elected and community leaders while asking the tough questions regarding land use policy. Each monthly show will feature a guest where your host, Jacob Rogers, and Christina Ellis will interview and have conversations about issues important to our industry and membership. Hello and welcome to Policy Vibe, where we discuss leadership and land use policy. My name is Jacob Rogers. I am your co-host today, and I have my other host here, Christina Ellis. Hello, hello. How are you doing, Christina? I'm good. I'm a little bit tired. You want to get into that? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you so tired? So I've got, I think I already told our audience, but I've got a two and a half year old and almost six month old, oh. and we just switched them this past weekend into a big girl bed and into a real crib. And so my daughter was up at 4.30 this morning with her light on singing, it's okay to be sad sometimes, (laughs) and knocking on her door to be let out. So I am appreciating this full cup of coffee. Did she she go back to sleep? Well, the light went off. I don't actually know if she went to sleep, but the light was off after I um, gently chastised. Well, I think we'd share that. I I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning with two puppies crying, Mm. took them outside, they cried some more after I put them back to bed. And so it took me another 45 minutes to go to sleep. And then they woke up again at six. So good times. Adulting. I don't know if I care for it. I know. Not for the faint of heart, right? No, I don't. You know, it's tough. All right. Well, let's go ahead and introduce our guest today. This is someone who really doesn't need an introduction, but we're going to give her a long introduction. So our guest today is, is Carrie Town Councilwoman Jennifer Robinson. I've got a list of things to go through here, right? You know, she has been the chair of Go Triangle, which is our regional transfer or transit authority here in the Triangle, chair of Triangle J Council of Governments, and is currently serving as chair or president of uh, North Carolina League of Municipalities. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So I got to tell us a quick story because about how I think that one of the first times I met you, we were on a flight from San Diego back to Raleigh and I sit down, you sit down next to me. It's like one of those things where you were, I think you were putting in ear earbuds to listen and it was kind of one of those things like don't talk to me, but I, I caught you right before and we ended up talking the whole time, the whole flight and I basically forced you to talk to me for those four or five hours. You, Jacob? <laughs> no, no. But you know, you know when you're in an airport, you, you people put their earbuds in you're thinking, all right, don't talk to them. That means you don't want to talk to or they're going to listen to this podcast, I'm sure. Or, you know, it's too early or it's too late, whatever. But I'm always that guy that when they sit down, hey, how are you? Where are you from? Where are you, where are you going? And they, they, you know, they look at me like, you ass. <laughs> 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 they take out the earphone like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, never mind, man. Have a good flight. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I didn't give Jennifer that option. <laughs> just funny back. So I'm glad you're here. Oh, thank you so much. So we did a little bit of, of research on you. You know, we dug deep, called a bunch of people. <laughs> Local from- law enforcement. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> they had a lot on you. Yes. I have four children. <laughs> <laughs> so you're from Fairfax, Virginia. Uh-huh. Tell us about what it was like growing up there. Fairfax, when I was growing up there, was a lot like Carrie is today. It was going through that transition from dirt roads that were becoming six-lane, median-divided highways. So when I left Fairfax, I distinctly was picking Cary because it it felt like what I kind of remembered my childhood home to feel like, and I didn't want it to turn into what Fairfax County has turned into, which is just such a a hustle-bustle kind of place. 
So what brought you to North Carolina or Cary? Well, my parents were driving down to Florida from the D.C. area to do um, look for a home to retire. And on the way, they broke down in Durham. And the people were so friendly here. They were so helpful. My parents came back and they're like, why would we move to Florida when the people in North Carolina are so friendly? And uh, my sister and I both were working in D.C. And we both said, you know, we'd, we'd not retire to Florida or we'd not move to Florida, but we would move to North Carolina. So within a year, um, I moved down here. My sister moved down here and then my parents came soon after. Well, there you are. I know. Friendly people. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty friendly. I don't even you know what to add friendly. to that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I kind of want to ask, you know, what were you supposed to be when, when you grew up? I mean, when you were a kid or when you were a teenager going to college or, or getting out of high school, what, what was, what was your, your, your career goal? I mean, did you always want to be in public service? Not at all. That, that totally took me by surprise, really. When I was in high school, I wanted to be an architect. And I actually applied to a lot of colleges for architecture. But, you know, I ended up going to UVA for liberal arts. And um, by God's good grace, I was given the opportunity to do programming um, in the summers for the Administration of Children and Families, which is a D.C. agency, and uh, loved it. I loved working in software and working with data, and it just kind of carried me on in a career. So and politics is, you know, working in public service is my, my side gig. Wait, when you say side gig, do you have a different job also? Yeah, yeah. so I work over at SAS. That's right. I did yeah. see that. Yeah, so I work there. Work with the local municipalities, I right? I do. I do. It's the dream job, let me tell you. So, yeah. Is, so is that just in North Carolina or really no, anywhere? No, it's, it's all across the country. Wow. Yeah. What do you think is a quality between your day job and the government political world thing? That Where is the overlap? Oh, for my job, there's a lot of overlap because I'm working with local governments across the country to help them use data analytics to become more efficient and and better at what they do in serving the citizens. So that's very similar because I leverage a lot of what I've learned on the job as a Cary councilwoman. And, um, and my experiences of seeing how governments falter with when they try to kind of like make decisions from the gut versus doing data-driven dis uh, decisions. One thing, uh, one, one great thing about Carrie, we I was had a conversation with Scott Berry last week about some of the data they collect on on the development stuff, and it's uh, um, using I cannot remember the name of the system right now, but it was it's very detailed, and they have a lot of information to I guess uh, um, gauge their effectiveness and and who out you know the, the issues, and and that's. Uh, it's really at the forefront. I don't know. There, there's, there are other municipalities gathering information, but I don't know if they're doing it at the level the carry is. And it's Carrie's the leader. Always. Right? Always. <laughs> go, go carry. No, carry is a leader. There's, there's a handful of cities and counties across the country. Wake County's a leader. Um, they are leading the way. They're showing other governments what you can do when you take all that data that you have and put it to work. And, you know, I tell communities, if if you're not using your data, it's like having gold buried below town hall and you're not digging it out. You know, it's mm -hmm. just, it's very valuable. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask, where where does your drive come from? You know, where, where's, the, you're very ambitious. Just from what I've seen that you're involved in, um, Triangle J to Go Triangle. Um, I mean, the list of, committees and task forces that you've either chaired or been involved in and over the last 20 years, 
It's like 10 miles long. It really is. It's a long list. Uh, what, what, where, where does that ambition come from? Where does that drive? Well, I'd say it's more drive than it is ambition because there are some people who want to acquire a position to kind of step stone them to the next thing. For me, all the opportunities that I've taken advantage of, of like, you know, cheering, go triangle or whatever, has been because I see an opportunity for me to serve and to make a difference, to move the needle. And I don't serve in any position that I don't feel like I had that kind of like, you know, burning desire to go and do something and, and make a difference, um, you know, it, maybe kind of right the ship a little bit or direct it, try to assist whatever organization it is. So that's, you know, it, that's what it is. That's the drive is kind of feeling like I can make a difference. What about, uh, you know, this is, do you have FOMO? Fear of missing out when it yeah. comes to information. Yeah. Is that, is that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Somebody that, asked so. me that recently. I was like, I don't see it that way. Yeah. <laughs> you just know you have something to offer. And so, you know, you got to be involved. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you can't complain if you're not willing to step in and do something. Uh, one of our members, uh, I'll give a shout out to Carrie resident, Tom Ann Hutt. Uh, Tom okay. always says that. If you're uh, not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> so if you're if you're not at the table uh, uh, when these discussions are happening, you can't really can't really complain too much. Yeah, I agree. So uh, you've had a leadership role throughout most of Carrie's growth. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I believe in when you took when you were appointed to council, the the um, population was around ninety thousand, and today it's around what roughly one hundred and seventy. Yeah, so that, that's some tremendous growth in twenty years. Um, first, what is leadership? Mm-hmm. And tell us about your leadership style. Okay. All right. Well, I think I've always like, well, first of all, I should say I started as, on the Carytown Council in 1999. So it's been a long time. And I got involved there because I felt like things weren't happening that needed to happen. And I wanted to have a voice for my part of town, which seemed at that time to be um, experiencing a lot of growth, but not a lot of uh, opportunity to express how they wanted to shape that growth. So I got involved because I felt like they're like a good leader had three characteristics. They were a visionary. They had a resolve to get something done and they were an ambassador for their community. And so that was kind of like my my driving force there, what I thought, hey, this is what leadership is. And, and that's what I wanted to bring to the Carytown Council. In the 20 years that I've been in office, or gosh, nearly 21 years I've been in office, it, that perce- perception or, or perspective of what leadership is has evolved. So I really think that really strong leaders have a high level of empathy and respect because you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the person to really listen to the person that's coming to you and saying, this affects me. And that person could be a homeowner that lives adjacent to a project, or it could be a stakeholder, someone who has invested a lot of money, has money on the table and is trying to get a project through. Um, it could be a, a, another fellow council member or a staff member, but you know, to be able to have that empathy and to be able to listen to what their concerns and their interests are you know, helps drive a better decision in the end. And um, and that's where I feel like my colleagues on the Carytown Council are so successful is that they have a high level of empathy, a lot of respect, and we show each other respect. And, and we're often um, 
approached by our peers and other governments and they are like, how do you guys get along so well? You know, do you all love each other? Like you all best friends <laughs> and we're not best friends, but we all have a high level of respect for each other. Well, you you, you, you kind of segued into a, another question that I have for later, but I think it's appropriate now. You know, Carrie has one of the most experienced councils, mm-hmm. stable. And there hasn't been much turnover on that council in a while. Um, you and I asked this of Harold at our annual meeting uh, earlier this year. What do you attribute that to? The Did, stability uh, and, oh. and, and of council. Oh, that's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, one thing I have found about the Carytown council members is pretty much to a T, everybody who serves, serves because they love our community. They want to give back and they want to see what's right for carry you know to happen that's different from a lot of governments where people look at local government seat and say well you know i could serve on carry town council or i could serve on my council and then after that i'm going for state senator and then from there i'm heading off to congress you know and they look at it as a pass-through mm-hmm. and we don't have that in carry we have people who are heavily invested in carry i i can speak for myself but i think i'm speaking for pretty much everybody on the council we probably all have been approached to run for higher office. And, you know, you, you get that request and then you you ponder it and you're like, you know, I really feel like I'm making a difference right here. I'm, do, I'm, I'm in the right place right now. And so I think that that's why we have that longevity that you see. That kind of makes me think. So in 2014, you were the woman of Western Wake. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. And so they wrote an article about you. And so in the article, one of the things that you said is, Every day I contemplate what I can do to help. I drive around town with a critical eye and think about the future and how to protect what we love. So just based on that and kind of what you were just talking about, what is it that you love about Carrie and what do you feel like needs protecting? Okay, well, you know, there's a lot I love about Carrie. I I love how we have developed so intentionally. There's a lot of planning that has gone into how things are situated in Cary so that you have transitional uses between apartment complexes and single family homes and offices. It, a lot of it goes well together. Um, when I came from Fairfax, one of the concerns that I had at that time is that you would start seeing very tiny parcels of land acquired, and then they would just kind of shoehorn in a lot of development on that site. Because at that point, land was so valuable in Fairfax that people were getting in whatever they could. So we're at that place now in Cary. We have less than 14% of our land vacant for green, what we call greenfield development, which is new development versus brownfield, which is like redevelopment. So when you're in that kind of situation, land prices are escalating and there's a lot of interest to try to maximize that site. So we really need to keep making sure that when we're talking to our stakeholders who own those properties and want to develop those properties and the homeowners adjacent to it, that what we have is not the the three-year vision or the five-year vision, but what we have is the 20-year vision or the 50-year vision. What do we want Cary to look like in the end? When this project is mature and the trees have grown up, what do we want it to be like? And we want everything to be harmonious. So, you know, that's probably a long answer to your short question. But, you know, we want it to keep being harmonious. We want it to be a place that's pleasant. And and I'll just add to that, you know, several years ago, we went through a recession. And we directed our staff to try to make Carrie look like there was not a recession going on. And we said to our staff, keep maintaining the medians. 
keep painting the fire hydrant because if people are having a rough time at home with their with their personal budget, we don't want them to feel like everything is falling apart. We want them to feel like when they're driving home, it's okay. Everything's okay. And, you know, we really prioritized that in the last recession. We, with our median plantings, you know, we prioritize medians in carry because we said, you know, we're going to get stuck in traffic. This is an inevitable experience here because so many people are coming. They want to live in the region. We're going to have traffic, not like Los Angeles, but traffic, you know, it's going to be bad. It might as well look good. If you're sitting in your car and you're in traffic, it might as well look good so that you're yeah. like, okay, you know, I hate traffic, but you know, those are some good looking myrtles right there. <laughs> well, one of the things I first noticed when I moved to North Carolina was uh, the interstates had like wildflowers growing. Yeah. I thought, I'd, you know, I never really paid attention to that. But when I got here, I was like, that's, you know, traveling this 85 was a, enough of a pain, but seeing all the wildflowers and the stuff growing on the side and on the exits, it was like, it was really cool. Yeah. And even in the areas that aren't developed, you know, even out in the rural areas where you see that, and I thought that was neat. Just curious, going back to something that you said, and this might be a somewhat ignorant question, but when you say that you're looking not at the five or 10 year plan, but at the 20, 25, 30, the long range plan, do you feel like that makes the approval process longer? No, not at all. No, because I think not just the council members, but our staff are constantly looking with that 30, 40, 50 year vision. And we do it so frequently that we're kind of well versed on what we know works and what doesn't work. When somebody says, oh, they're gonna take all the trees off this site, and they're, you know, but we're requiring a type A, which means an opaque buffer with, you know, triple the plantings that you might see in other communities, you're kind of like, I understand the concern, but we're gonna be okay in the end. So one thing that we really try to do with our stakeholders that are coming through the system is to be consistent with them, to set their expectations. We're trying to get everything, and it's a working in progress. It's not something that we're like, oh, we, we achieved it. We're trying to make our intentions as clear as possible to our stakeholders so that when they come through the process, it's not lengthy so, you or know, arduous. Well, sometimes it still is. <laughs> I know. I know. But we do our best. That's, that's right. Uh, so kind of along these lines, you know, what are the challenges and benefits of, of working with such an experienced council, you know, from, from your perspective? Oh, yeah. Oh, it's so clear. So when there, a council member is brand new, and I, I'm going to say this as a person who was a brand new council member at one point, you're like, I am here and I am here to save Carrie. I am, <laughs> you know, I am going to do it all. You know, I mean, to the point where I remember Nels Rosalind, who was a fellow council member of mine at the time, like in 1999 or 2000, our staff was talking about how something was going to take a long time to write a report. And we were like, we can get this done over the weekend. Let's, you know, <laughs> we can write this, you know, and and so new council members, first of all, oftentimes think that, you know, they have so many campaign promises out there that they have to go in and they've got to do it all. They're going to do it themselves, right? Yeah. This is a one-man show here. We're, I've got this covered. And they don't understand the differences of responsibility between elected official and staff members. And so seasoned council members understand that you are not, accomplishing anything by yourself. You are one of seven or five, however many people we have on your council, you are, you are a group that's accomplishing it together. And you cannot accomplish that without a strong staff. And showing respect for your staff, believing and trusting them, allowing them to do their jobs is paramount. And not trying to step on their job and say, well, let me do this. Let, you know, we have, A lot of times immature council members will try to step in and do what the staff does. 
And they don't need you to do that. They just need you to do what you're supposed to do, which is setting a vision, mm-hmm. being a policymaker, establishing the laws, and speaking for the citizens. And so that that little nuance, once you start figuring it out, you know, then you start becoming productive. How do you build consensus on council? Listening, right? And this is, you know, I'm still learning, right? But I think one thing that we've been very fortunate about in Cary is having Harold Weinbrecht as our as our leaders, our person who's running these council members, our meetings, because he's highly collaborative. And if you ever watch one of our meetings, you'll see that he has a pulse on the council to know what's really important to each council member. And he will look pointedly to that council member when it when it's time for council people to talk. And he'll say, Jack, would you like to say something? Or, you know, Don, would you like to say? He, he kind of like leads it out. And then he calls on each person. And we all have this uh, technique where we try to allow every person to talk before we talk again, mm-hmm. which is really hard for extroverts. And most of the people on the council Absolutely. are extroverts. It's really, really hard. But we've, we've practiced that over the years. Have you read any leadership books or listened to any leadership podcasts that you really like or have really spoke to you? Yes, I have read some good books on leadership. And of course, at this moment, none, you know, none <laughs> sure, of come to mind. But I'll, I'll tell you right now, I've changed off of reading leadership books to trying to read books that speak from the heart of people who are not their leaders. They're the people who are impacted by leaders and impacted by others. And so a couple of weeks ago, I read The Hate You Give which gives a really good perspective. Christina, you're not even, it sounds like you've read it. Gives a really good perspective of someone who feels like she's on the wrong side of racial injustice. And and is, if you read the book, she is, and, and she is, and she feels that way. And then I'm reading Maya Angelou's book right now. I think it's called, uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Sings. Yeah. So I, I should have read it. Honestly, I should have read it back when I was in college because my roommate talked about it all the time. And so now I'm reading that and it's really helping me broaden my perspective and understand why people say the things that they say, why they do the things that they're doing and why they have the perspectives that they have as far as what solutions are. And um, that's been extremely healthy for me. So thinking regionally here, you know, being chair of Triangle J and Go Triangle, both regional organizations, what did you learn? What did you take away from those experiences? From Triangle J and and go Triangle and go Triangle. The first thing that I'd say from Triangle J Council of Government, which I always think should be called the Triangle Council of Government, doesn't that sound so much more logical? Yeah, but you they will not drop the J. They will not drop the J. Yeah, I, I tried to get that through. That did not happen. Um, what I learned from them, <laughs> I'm not um, surprised. Me. Yeah, I lost the vote by one. But um, yeah, what I learned from there is how incredibly complex the issues are that can only be addressed at the regional level. Stormwater doesn't stop at our borders. Crime doesn't stop at our borders. Transportation issues don't stop at our borders. And, you know, we have become a community. We've become a region where we've all grown together. And so we have to address these issues as a region. And you see a lot of stepping up by different municipalities and counties to take the lead in different areas to help us do that regional work. So that's one thing I've learned from there. And you know, I just think the the Council of Government is incredibly strong, incredibly valuable to the future success of our region. So that's what I've learned there. You know, serving on the transit organization 
it has become abundantly clear to me that our region is always going to struggle with affordability, which is like most regions in the country, mm -hmm. actually, you know, metro regions. We're going to struggle with affordability, and it is nearly impossible, I actually think it's impossible, for governments to pay their way out of an affordability issue. Then you say, okay, so if people can't live right next to their job, they're going to have to live further out away right. from their job, and they have smaller incomes, we need transit. Transit's going to have to be a successful component of our region's growth. And there are a lot of people who are like, well, I'm not for transit. I wouldn't get on a bus. I wouldn't get on a train. Mm -hmm. That's okay. You don't have to get on a right. bus or it's a train, but support it because other people are going to get on the bus and the train. They're not going to get in their car on your, your commute to work. You know, mm -hmm. that's one less person. But also, it's a compassion thing. If you are talking about people on a fixed income or a limited income, the compassionate thing to do is to offer a way for them to be able to affordably get to their job. You know, uh, and one of the things you and I talked about on the way back from San Diego, and I remember sitting in on um, on one of the sessions there where the San Diego Council of Governments was, um, the acronym was SANDAG. And I remember getting back on the plane and, and you and I were talking about this and, you know, thinking how the, the folks in San Diego took, or on, in the Council of Governments there took such a leadership role in affordability and transit and really helped shaped for the region. And, and I think it really helped their members of, you know, in the local governments kind of do this. You know, I don't know. And I remember you and I actually, we had lunch with Lee to talk about mm -hmm. this stuff <laughs> and bandwidth and, and everything was discussed. But, you know, looking at a more strategic, you know, Cary has undertaken an, an affordable housing study. Mm -hmm. uh, Wake County did it uh, three years ago. I was on that task force along with Lori Bush. And Apex is undergoing uh, their affordable housing study. I'm on that task force. We did this at the county three. I mean, how do we get, why aren't we tackling this more at a, at a, at a, <laughs> at a regional level? Why do you think we need a carry plan, an Apex plan, and also a county plan? Well, I think every organization, and when I say organization, I mean local government, has a role to play. And it's a very, very high hurdle Incredible. This is incredibly difficult to do. And there are so many different components of it. So it's not an either or. It's at a regional level. It's at the individual government level. And we need to make sure that when we have these conversations, that we are not having these conversations because it looks good to our citizens, because it makes us more popular in our party, because it will promote us to the next highest level, we have to have these conversations with sincerity, and that starts with having a realistic understanding of what is possible and what is not. And, you know, I talked to Ted Abernathy, who is a leading economist, and I asked him, I said, you know, talk to me more about supply and demand on affordability. And we had a very nice conversation about it, and he affirmed what I believe, which is really affordability comes back to supply. And a government cannot supply enough. We cannot intervene enough to right. supply enough, right? So how do you attack that supply side of it? And I said, are there any communities that are doing this? He goes, yeah, actually Dallas doesn't have affordability issue because they have so much supply. And so that leads you to having to have a very sincere and realistic conversation about how we can improve affordability. And that means 
supplying more units. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't want more units. I don't. I don't well, they're okay more. with more units, but over there. Over there, yeah. <laughs> you know, Franklin County sounds nicer than yeah. Wake County of yeah. having units, uh, yeah. regardless of, of what units look like or more, what they are. It doesn't right? matter what they are, because when we approve and carry, when we approve more units, and let's say um, I somebody who's against the project goes, well, this doesn't affect affordability because these are going to be high-end apartment units. Well, that's going to add more, infuse more units into carry that will compete with the existing units. Mm-hmm. There are some very, very expensive, crappy units in carry that I wouldn't <laughs> want my girls to live. In. I wouldn't want my daughters to live in. Right, my son, he could live there. Size <laughs> <laughs> room, would be like, yeah, he's fine. But you know, you see, you know, when that happens, when you infuse more supply into the market, it's going to result in some of those other units being more affordable. And some people say, well, if you just stop building and people will stop coming, that does not work. No. That does not work because people always say to me, I love Carrie and I came here and I don't want it to change at all. I don't want any more people. And and I'm like, oh, really? And I talk to them and they're like, well, I came here because my mother came here and then my best friend from college came. And I said, look, everybody who comes to this region brings doesn't want anybody else to come except for their mother, their sister, <laughs> and their best friend from college. Right? Absolutely. So you're not going to stop the, the demand. And so the only thing we can do is to increase the supply. And that's going to come in many different shapes and forms, but it's not going to be solely on the back of subsidies because we can't afford right. We just never could do that. Well, you know, one of the the, the concerns and when, when I was on the Wake County Committee, and I believe uh, we're using the same consultants uh, that Wake County use, HRNA, who carry. I- I actually, sure. I don't remember, so I'm so sorry. I, I'm, I'm almost certain it is, and, and, and they're using, eight, uh, they're working with Apex, yeah. and getting in these conversations, it's always, they have these high level, and it's all these buzzwords that poets want to use, and it's and it's almost like, you know, they're saying things because uh, somebody else wants to hear it. Yeah. You know, it's not with the conversations of sincerity and saying what we can actually do versus uh, what we can't, you know, you can't raise enough money. You can't can't tax enough on this. Uh, So, you know, and I have a problem and I had and I've always voiced it with them. Like, all right, let's stop discussing what we can't do. Mm -hmm. There's several things that we have a legal. We don't have the authority to do legislatively. So let's take it off the table for now. I mean, that's nothing that we can do. And I have a hard time because every time we have these conversations and have one with Apex a couple of weeks ago, it's just this high level. And I'm thinking, gosh, you know, this is a problem. We've got to drill down and say, what can we do and what can we not? And and what is the local government willing to do? And how can that direct maybe even uh, private industry to play a part? And maybe there is some subsidy that needs to happen for for the, the lowest income brackets and um, you know supportive housing. There is a need for that throughout this county. But uh, having those sincere conversations and, and not just the buzzwords of, you know, saying this for because somebody need, wants to hear it. Right. It's not happening. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, there's... N- I think a lot of people would like to think that there's a silver bullet mm-hmm. for affordable housing, and there isn't. And I've said to, you know, friends and and citizens and whatever, if somebody says, "Why don't you just da 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 da?" Yeah. Okay, I've been in office for twenty years. <laughs> if you know, only one time in my career of serving in office has a citizen said to me, "Why don't you just da 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 da?" 
And she actually had a new idea that was actually achievable and we did it and she was right. Every other time, if it was that easy, we would have done it. Right. If it was that simple, everybody would be doing it. There's no, why don't you just da-da-da-da-da. Right. So it, there's a lot to it. One thing we have to really think about, and this is, this does not often get discussed, but affordability is more than just your housing costs. It's your child care costs. You know, do you have to own a car or can you get by riding a bus? You know, it's... There's a factor of livable wage. I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of components mm -hmm. in there, and so we have to look at it in totality. Absolutely. It's uh, all right then. Well, moving on. What are you most proud of since being appointed? You know, I know you, your first time you were appointed council, yeah. and then you've run for election. You know, what are you most proud of on your time? And then, are there any disappointments, or is there anything that should have been done differently, in your opinion? Oh yeah. Okay, so let's start with the disappointments. Okay. Get that off the table, right? <laughs> so you you can't serve an office without seeing something come to fruition and be like, I messed that one up. So one of them, there's many, so I don't want to embarrass myself by saying all of them. But you know, one of them was when. NCDOT came to us in committee. I was on a, on a committee this a long time ago with the drawings for the expansion of Route 1 and the noise walls they were going to put up. And we saw the overhead, like this is where they're going to be laid out. But we had seen along 440 the brick noise walls, and we all made the presumption that it would be brick noise walls. Okay, this is probably like 2002, mm -hmm. right? Maybe 2001, 2002, three. And we never asked them, what are these going to look like? Really, no no vegetation between the shoulder and the noise wall so you could plant something, nothing there, just right, noise wall right on the shoulder. Never looked at it. And when it got built, I was like, oh my gosh, I have let everybody down because <laughs> I had a responsibility to to represent the citizens and say, we need it to look good. I mean, even if they had just given us two feet so we could plant vines up the front of it, you know, and it looks so terrible. So that, I can't, I really don't even want to drive on Route 1. It just makes me so <laughs> mad at myself when I go on there. I can't. 18 years later. <laughs> yeah. I can't get over it. I feel so bad. We had another situation out in Western Cary where Wake County came to us and asked us to rezone some land that was set aside. I think it was like retail office mixed use. Instead, rezone it for a school so they could put a school in there. And we we're like, yeah, this is great. But we failed to notice like a three or so acre parcel right adjacent to it that was zoned for a gas station. And it was under the same ownership. So we should have at that time said, yeah, you could put the school there, but then you have to take off gas station as a possible use here for this parcel of land. And I just, I feel so bad that I missed that. Nobody on my council picked up on it. No staff member, no planning and zoning. Nobody picked up on it. No citizen reached out to us until the gas station wanted to be built. And then everybody was like, what? What the hell? How did we do this? How did this happen? You know? So I feel terrible about that. I mean, there's things like that sprinkled around. So that's what I feel bad. Those kind of things. Any policy related items that... Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we set a policy for what was the southwestern horizon of Cary, which is now Western Cary. Mm -hmm. And we said, oh, we, you know, the people who live there are like, we love the farming aspect of this. We don't want the, it to change it. We're like, yeah, we don't have to change it. We can allow development and it'll always feel farm-like. And so we did things like we said, no curb and gutter. You know, those were kind of our, some of our policies. We're trying to promote this, like, look and feel of a rural community. It doesn't look like the rest of Cary. People ask me all the time, when are we going to get our sidewalk? When does the curb <laughs> and gutter go in there? I'm like, maybe never. I don't know. You know, and we've changed the policy since and since we started realizing that it didn't come to the fruition that we had wanted it to. But it's so disappointing. So I mean, isn't that how policy works? I mean, you, you can see what works and what doesn't. I mean, you've had 
trial and error and oh, yeah. stuff that has gone right. Yeah, and, and, and that's why council members that serve a long time have value. I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, I believe in term limits. They're like, yeah, I like term limits. There's a lot of pros for term limits, but council members who've been around as long as we have, I mean, somebody can come and sit across the table from me and say, hey, I think I'm doing going to do this. I'll be like, okay, let me tell you where this is going to go sideways. You know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Here's what I like, you know. Yeah. And I don't even have to, like, go and do research on it, you know. So, and all my council colleagues are the same way. Uh, but I should answer the second half so I don't leave it on a negative. Can I answer what I did right? <laughs> Please don't leave me just saying all the terrible things I've done. We're just going to cut you off right there. <laughs> and thank you for coming in today. Yeah. <laughs> so, so things that I'm happy about. One thing that you know I've tried to impress upon my council colleagues is the idea of waiting for great. I call it wait for great. You know, not jumping at the first thing that comes to us, the first pass at it. You know, when IKEA came, you know, and this is not to criticize my fizzle fellow council members, but some of them were like, oh, Ikea, I love you. I love visiting you. I love your meatballs. I love everything about you. Anything you want, we will give it to you. We're so happy to have you. And I was like, no way, man. Like, <laughs> you know, no, if you want to be here, you know, lift our standards, you know. And but because they got the majority of the council going, oh, we love you. They're like, we're going to put we a blue and want. yellow metal building up and we're not going to put any vegetation up. And we're not going to do any road improvements and, you know, those wires that we should have moved. We're not going to do that. You know what I mean? Because they're like, yeah, I already have the buy-in of all the council members. So I keep saying to my council well, members. They like, only need four votes, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, this is debatable, but I'm happy IKEA didn't come. But, you know, I think. We're not going to edit that. Yeah. <laughs> Let that be on the record. Look what, we, look what we got instead, though. I mean, we have this new dynamic, multi-family, mixed-use office project that's coming in that's going to be a real nice harmonious use with the adjacent homeowners the fenton not the fenton oh. the uh carry uh mall oh yeah yes. renovation that's right it's, it's redo it's i mean everything's going to be taken down except for belks and and it's going to it's going to be so nice that people who live adjacent to it are going to be so proud mm -hmm. i think if we had ikea had come which i you know i like ikea but if it had come it would not have been that harmonious use like we were talking about earlier and you would not have had homeowners who were like, yeah, I think I just want to walk through the parking lot of Ikea today. You know, that's that wouldn't have happened. There would have been like this weird barrier, like a... It's a great wall. piece of land. I mean, it's a great location to you, right? Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so I mean, I think, you know, just impressing upon my fellow elected leaders to, to wait for great and to have high standards, aesthetic standards. I've helped drive some projects forward that have resulted in additions to our community that I think are good, like the West Regional Library. I went out and found someone to to didn't donate the land, but they sold it at a really discounted price and got that contributed. And I got the council to put aside a million dollars so that we could then go to Wake County with a an offer to have to entice them to come and build with uh, West Regional Library. Um, several parks and schools kind of came about that same way. We needed schools. We were at a point in Carrie's history many years ago. We were desperate for schools, and we really had to bring something to the table to entice them. And then uh, most recently, working with a stakeholder in Cary to, first of all, you know, identify some land that could be a future park for Cary because, you know, our, our growth boundary goes all the way into Chatham County. So mm -hmm. we're going to have a lot of people living over in Chatham County, identifying land that could be set aside for a park, getting money in the bond, referendum for open space and park acquisition, and then taking it through the process. I mean, it's been a year, but we just acquired this past week 
about 220 acres. Yeah, I saw, I saw that. That's amazing. Amazing. And I've, I've had several developers reach out to me like, how'd you guys get that? We've been like, we've been, you know, pursuing that for 10 years, you know, but everything, all the stars align. So, you know, but it's, it's working those relationships and the system and knowing how things work to be able to make that happen. So you mentioned relationships. Part of leadership is relationships. Uh, how have you built relationships regionally and, well, even statewide? Mm-hmm. Well, I remember being a new council member and getting on a bus next to a guy who's no longer in office. He was a Wake County commissioner, Herb Council. And I said, hey, Herb, my name is Jennifer Robinson. I'm, a, I'm newly elected in Cary Town Council. And I really want a library. And, you know, this is really important to me. And you have the power to make a library happen. And he put his hands up and he said, slow down. He said, get to know me. He said, Don't ask me for anything until you know me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I mean, and it was really good guidance. It was like, you know, foster the relationships. You know, you don't, you know, you don't go ask for something. You don't go start, you know, you wouldn't go up to a friend, like somebody you just met a neighbor and going, hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? Like, I've never <laughs> met you before, but can I borrow your lawnmower? I mean, you form those relationships and you, you do for others so that there's a kind of a collaborative experience going on. And, and they're, you know, when you go and ask them for something or you need help, they want to give it to you because you've helped them in the past and you've worked with them and you've been behind them. And you, would you say that that your work on these regional boards and get, being involved in these organizations have helped oh, yeah. foster that? Oh, yeah. And there's so many great people who serve in public office. You know, I you watch TV and you see some people in elected office and you're like, politicians, you know, yeah. they're so awful. But Oh, we talk about them all the time. All the time. But, you know, there are... <laughs> At the local level in North Carolina, there are so many extraordinary people. And I actually, you know, I serve on a, a national board, too. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, just the how authentic and sincere people are wanting to improve their community is amazing. So I'm, I'm really honored to be able to, to serve with other people. Do you have a mentor or, or, or a couple or however many locally that, you know, when, when something comes up, you're like, yeah, I'll call him or her? Yeah, we, there, there's a lot of going back and forth. I I don't have at this juncture, I wouldn't say I have like a true mentor, but after I drive away, I'll be like, oh, I should have mentioned so-and-so. But for the first many years of my public service, Bill Coleman, who was a past manager in the town of Cary, was certainly my mentor. And I would run things by him all the time. And he really helped me develop my perspective and my leadership skills and, and whatnot. And he was just a, a fabulous guy. And he uh, passed away in 2014. But up until that point, he was definitely my sounding board that would be the person I would call and say, I don't know how to handle this. What do I do? So I'm curious, the people who you work with most often, maybe on council or one of your other boards, how do you think they would describe you if someone asked them, who is Jennifer Robinson? And then my follow-up to that is, how would your kids describe you? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Not the same. <laughs> I told you we were going to ask you the tough questions. Oh, yeah. My, my daughter's 14, and she was talking about her friend's mother, and she said, you know, who's a nice young mom. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. I know. I know. I'm like, oh, she's mm. only 14 years younger than I am. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. My kids think I'm busy all the time. They think I go, go, go. Like that's like, I don't like to sit down. Like I don't want to go on a vacation where I'm just sitting, you know, I like to, like to do. And so you have a plan. I have a plan. I'm like, well, yeah, sometimes I don't have a plan. Sometimes I like not having a plan and just going and doing, you know, see what happens, see what unfolds. But yeah, so I think that's how my kids would describe me. I'm really not sure how my council colleagues or my, you know, other peers in local government would 
uh, describe me. I, I hope that they describe me as collaborative and sincere and, you know, you know, hopefully good at what I do. I don't know what they'd say, but that's what I'd like them to say. <laughs> I'd say engaging. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Thank you. Oh, thanks. <laughs> You're engaging too. <laughs> and sorry, if I can just ask add one more question to that. You've used the word sincere a lot. Yeah. Can you define what sincere means to you? Sincere is doing something for the right reasons, not for showmanship or for something that you'll gain from it, but doing it you know, for others, for the betterment of your community, doing a job the way it's supposed to be done. Talking, you mentioned sincerity about uh, being on council. What advice? And I asked this to Harold when I had Harold, Marianne, and Steve Shule on this panel event, and he uh, he's like, "Oh no, I won't. I can't, I can't answer this." But I'm gonna I'm asking okay. you today, okay. and it's just us in this room. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to other municipalities who are struggling to make decisions as Carrie was in the early 2000s? Oh, gosh. Well, I just served I, I just served on a panel on this in Moore uh -oh. County for Moore and Lee County several months ago. So you're talking about the communities that are what we call under siege. They're, <laughs> wow. Um, yeah. That's intense. Well, <laughs> it, it, sounds, it sounds intense, but it, I mean, you, you feel it, right? Everything is happening. You don't have enough road capacity. Everybody's moving here. You can't get a pumpkin at uh, Halloween because all the pumpkins are sold out. You can't get your kid <laughs> into preschool. No, that was real. That was Carrie. I mean, that was what Western Carrie was like. When I moved here, I came here in um, 2005 and... In 2006, I had my nieces and nephews staying with me for Thanksgiving or for Halloween. You could not get a pumpkin. I tried to enroll my kids in preschool. You could not get into preschool. I mean, I literally got up at four in the morning and stood in the dark waiting outside on a, a little farm road, waiting for the church to open up this gate so we could just 150 moms and dads <laughs> rush in to try to get the limited spots in preschool. I mean, wow. there was not enough of anything for anybody in Cary. There was a time once I went to, the, to a store to buy diapers and there were no size two diapers. I what? mean, I'm not kidding you. Yeah. And the, the manager happened to be there and he said, you finding everything okay? And I said, no. No, I'm not. You have no size two diapers. You have, you know, I had a daughter at the time who was a size nine or 10, whatever little girls are. I was like, you have no size 10 shorts at all in the entire store here. I'm like, you don't have enough of anything. And that guy was sorry he asked you. No, no, no. no he said, it's true. He yeah. said, I can't convince, I can't convince headquarters that I'm always out of supply. And interestingly enough, I saw him about a month and a half later at Halloween. The shelves at the store were empty of Halloween candy in advance of Halloween. And he was taking pictures of the empty shelves to send back to headquarters. But that's what a, a community feels like when they're under siege because they don't have enough of anything and they have so much demand. And yet they have every farm is up for sale and people want to build. And you're like, how, how are we going to allow, you know, 200 more apartments and 300 single family homes if we don't even have a road that can get people you know, down the street, you know, whatever. And you have tons of people yelling. And you have tons of people yelling. And so we went through this very awkward, I mean, it was like your teenage years in elected office is what it felt like. You know, nobody kind of knew where their arms and legs were going. And, you know, we were, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was just like, it was, it was, it was clumsy. And so we tried all kinds of things that we thought would work. For example, we put a moratorium on growth and we we're like, yes, this is going to do it. People still came. If they were planning on coming to this region, they still came. They just moved to Apex instead of Cary or Morrisville. And they drove through our roads and they were just as crowded. And when we lifted that moratorium, what had happened is the land values had gone up so much 
regionally and Cary, you know, is located somewhat in the middle. Mm -hmm. So it proportionally went up even more. And then all of the custom local builders were like, I can't afford it now. And so the only people who could afford it were the national builders. And so it changed kind of the uh, mix of stakeholders in our community. So we tried things like that. And, you know, what I would say to people who are in this this position of uh, leading a town or city or county that's under a lot of growth is I'd say, try to shape the growth the way that you think your citizens want it to go. Don't try to curtail the growth or stop the growth. Don't try to artificially suppress it in any way, but just try to make sure that whatever is done is done in a way that 30 years from now, you look back at it and go, that was right. This is good. It feels really good. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to growth and the economic vitality of the region, and and Carrie specifically, what's the goal? What, What are you looking for when new projects come across your desk? What gets your vote? We say that we want a project to be compelling. So we want it to be something that raises Carrie just a little bit more as being a nice place to live. So if you come in and let's say you're in an apartment complex and you come in and you say, I'm going to put 300 apartments in. And um, do you mind if I eat into that buffer on the road? Like, do you mind if I move them like super close to the road? Let's 15 feet. Is that okay with you? And that you know, I'm going to put the parking behind right up against those single family homes. Are you good with that? Like, you know, <laughs> six stories, you know, you're okay. And you're like, I don't know. And sometimes they'll show us a picture of the and it could look like this. Well, that's not a condition. So we want it to be compelling. We want them to actually write down their conditions so that we know what we're getting. And we say, what could make this compelling? So if somebody else comes in and says, I I want 350 apartments and, you know, yeah, I have to eat into the buffer. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to supplant the, you know, that buffer reduction with more plants. I'm going to put more in there and look at this. I'm going to I'm going to add this gathering spot. And this is going to be so meaningful because you know, we're going to make it like dog friendly and we're going to do this. And, and they, they put these things in and they're like, oh, and we're going to put, you know, this masonry requirement in. So it's going to look really, really nice. And, and oh, look how we're going to um, step it down when it's near the homes and how it's going to really be harmonious. Like if you're at the homes, you're not even going to see the fifth story of this building. You're really only going to see two stories. Well, that that applicant has made it compelling for us. And they're putting it down in conditions. And so we have a sense of trust, like, you know, this is going to get built. This is going to add to that the housing stock of carry, but it's going to raise that bar just a little bit and make it really nice. So don't come to carry unless you are interested in improving carry. Correct. That Got is it. correct. And and people all the time come to me, like investors from outside, and they're like, yeah, I want to come to carry, but you're, you know, all these rules, you're going to make me add this extra lane. And I'm like, look, everybody else before you did it. And that's what made this community so great. So you you come in and you do your contribution too. This is this is a give and take here. You are not impressed by the glitz and glamour. It is like here is the baseline. If you can't meet baseline, get out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna talk to and you. And the baseline's high. Yeah. And yeah, the yeah, baseline yeah. is high. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We just wanted to, I just want it to be done right. I mean, I will say this. My sister is my best friend. She's one of my best friends. And she and I have almost the same saying that is completely different. Her saying is, if you're going to do it, do it now, which I think it's weird. Like, if you're going to do it, why now? I mean, (laughs) you know, don't you want to do it better? I always say, if you're going to do it, do it right. And so, you know, that's totally different because she's like, just get it done. And I'm like, no, take your time, but get it done right. You know, so. So for our thousands of listeners and uh, (laughs) all those people in Japan, we're internationally syndicated. Tell us about the North Carolina League of Municipalities. Okay. So the North Carolina League of Municipalities, 
is a convener of cities, towns across the state. There are about 550 cities and towns. There's about 540 of them are members of the league. And they are everything from like those tiny, tiny towns of like, you know, 80 people all the way up to Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to get us all around the table and to be able to speak with one voice. So there are a lot of laws that the state passes that influence how cities and towns operate. And a lot of people coming from outside the state don't realize that. We are uh, Dillon's rural state. And what that means is that we can do what is authorized by the state, and we cannot do what is not authorized. If it's not explicitly told that we could do, we can't do it. For example, towns and cities are told that we can build libraries, so we can contribute and build libraries. We cannot build schools. So mm -hmm. we couldn't build a school. People are like, why don't you just have your own school system? It's because the state won't allow us to do it. So for that reason, because we're a Dillon's rural state, it is especially important that we're able to speak collectively to our elected officials at the state and federal level and to be able to articulate to them what our concerns are. So that is probably the first aspect of it is to have a common voice and to be able to advocate on behalf of cities and towns. But there's a lot more to it than that. We really want all cities to be able to operate as best as they can. And we've talked a lot about what is leadership and, and the how little people know when they come into office. Most people don't know what they're doing when they come into office. They just know that they care about their community. And so what the league does is it helps facilitate training. We work with the School of Government and we also do, we have some supplementary training, but we try to get everybody to the point, everybody who's elected into local office to the point where they understand what is the value of a tax rate? What is their tax base? What does that mean? You know, what are you allowed to do and what do you want your staff to do? What are they charged to do and so forth? So we try to get everybody trained up. And then the other thing is we're trying to help them all have the same access that the bigger communities have. And this is particularly near and dear to my heart because... You know, Carrie, Charlotte, Raleigh, we can go out and we can accomplish something. If we say, hey, we have this problem, we have the resources to be able to tackle it. And staff. And the staff. We have the money and the staff to do it. But a lot of communities don't. So this gives us the opportunity to do collective approaches to things. We have a risk pool. We have, you know, a lot of cities and towns get their insurance through the mm -hmm. league. Uh, but we're also tackling issues that they wouldn't be able to tackle on their own. Some of those now are beginning to be technology issues. Oh, technology, uh, economic development. You know, we spend in North Carolina, you've, we've got EDPNC, Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, which goes out and sells the state nationally and internationally. We've got RTRP, who sells the triangle. We've got Wake County Economic Development, who sells Wake County. And then we've got Ted Boyd, who sells yeah. Cary. <laughs> and then there's, you know, each one of the municipalities are around here, uh, a lot of them have those same kind of positions, those economic development directors who are, who are constantly uh, being the face, if you will, to people outside. To sell the town for business and, 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 and bring in businesses and employers. Well, a municipality such as Ahoski up in, you know, northeast uh, North Carolina uh, d doesn't have the resources of having that, that economic development director at the county and municipal level to say, you know, and, and I'm wondering, you know, kind of talking about a rural versus urban thing here is, I mean, there are more resources locally and definitely for, for places like Cary, but you know, a lot of these places like um, Wilson, I mentioned a Husky, uh, West Jefferson, uh, anywhere in, in North Carolina that's, that's not one of the big cities, 
no, where, where's the opportunity where, cause they're not, they're not, they're not getting the same kind of, uh, I won't say service, but definitely the same kind of attention that, that these other places are. And how do we, how do we balance that? You know, I, w- I had a conversation with some colleagues and they said, uh, what's good for urban North Carolina is good for rural North Carolina. And I, I turned it around and I said, well, what's good for rural North Carolina is good for urban North Carolina. And they were like, I don't know about that. <laughs> and I said, well, I don't, then I can't, you know, and I'm, I'm one who advocates for urban North Carolina. I mean, for the triangle, which is urban. But also, I come from a, a rural area in Alabama, and I know what it's like to grow up in a rural area and, and, and where those opportunities lie. So, you know, where does the league play in that? I mean, does, did, are they offering services or helping those communities that are trying to sell their areas? I know that EDPNC is probably doing a lot of that, but... What are your thoughts with that? Well, I think councils of government probably take more of a leadership role in economic development for rural areas than the league does. I don't think the league has really stepped heavily into economic development. I think the the role that the league plays is to help every local government have an environment that is that offers quality of life for their citizens and for their businesses. And so, you know, for example, a lot of our rural communities don't have broadband. They don't mm-hmm. they don't have any access. And this is, you know, this has been highlighted by the whole COVID quarantine and the impact on schools. I mean, that's is, you know, come full light. But, you know, here in Cary, we have our choice, depending on where you live in the town, you have your choice of two or three internet providers. Absolutely. And a lot of communities have none. Some have one, and because of that, the rates are really high. So the league is trying to take a leadership role to be able to articulate that need to our state and federal legislators who have the op- opportunity to set policy laws and give incentives that can address those challenges. We want to make sure that if you're a child growing up in a rural community in, you know, let's let's say Northeast North Carolina, you have access to healthcare, you have access to school, to the internet to a a job if you're in high school, and to a future if you want to go to college or have a meaningful trade job. And I think that's what the league does, is is help cities and towns shore up what they have and what they can offer so that everybody has an opportunity to be successful, regardless of where you live in the state. What's it like being chair of that organization? It's wonderful because I, I the board has um, 35 people, including myself, and they are the brightest, best and brightest across the state. It's I had the good fortune to be able to have a half hour conversation with, with each of the other 34 members. You know, I called each one of them. We, we just talked. And the insights that I gleaned from them were profound. I, t- I took notes because if I didn't, you know, I didn't want things to get lost and, and what I could learn from everybody. But Citizens in North Carolina should feel really good about their leadership across the state. And um, I'm, I'm just really proud to be able to serve with these individuals. How do you choose what to be passionate about? Oh, it chooses you. Yeah, it does. Yeah. 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 And you can't do everything. And, you know, you, you, opportunities come to you and you're just like, I, I just don't have the, the bandwidth to, to take on that right now. But, you know, you try not to chair two organizations at the same time because... That's very taxing. Of course, people like Harold, you know, has a, have a hard time with that because they're mayor and they're asked to chair different things. Yeah. You know, um, 2020 is a hard time to be chair of anything. Mm. I'm, uh, I'm a chair of a couple of boards and it's just like, ugh. so you guys probably aren't meeting in person as you probably would. We are not meeting in person, but I don't know that that's a liability for the league. And I say that because 
it's so hard for people to come across the state. I mean, some people are traveling right. four and a half, five hours you know, to, to get to these meetings or more. I mean, holy cow, we had a meeting in Duck and we had people who came from <laughs> Cherokee. Ooh. I mean, that's a haul. That's like six hours. Yeah, that's you might as well drive to Florida at that point. You know, yeah. <laughs> we're having our conference in Tampa. I mean, it is so far for some people to travel across the state. So the nice thing about the online meetings is that everybody, you can see everybody, you can hear everybody, everybody's at the table. There's really, you know, no reason for you to have to miss unless you have a direct conflict with some other meeting. So I think that's okay. When Paul Meyer, who's the executive director of the league, and I sat down at the beginning you know, first of all, we met, we were in Washington, D.C. for a conference at the beginning of COVID. And he's like, this is like March 9th. And he says to me, hey, we might want to talk about canceling our conference. I'm like, this is this is not going to be a big deal. Right. <laughs> right. I was so wrong. You know, but then after it became a big deal, he said, well, you know, this might be one of those years where we just don't do a lot. And I'm like, you know, I didn't take this role to like not do a lot. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah. You know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to attack some of these big issues. And we are, we're. We're really trying to really hit some of those things that I think it's easy to kind of sweep under the the rug when things are busy, when life is super busy and you're right. running in 12 different directions. Well, you know, it's, it's the same in our world. I, I, f- I feel bad for our chair this year, Holly Fricaro, because she's usually the chair gets to, to, to introduce and be in front of the membership and, and be at these events. And we haven't really we haven't had any events since uh, February and we've pretty much canceled them all. But it's also given us a little more time to work on the things that we you know, behind the scenes and, right. and and work with everybody. It's a little bit, it's different, of course, but there's been an opportunity in this as well to, to some degree. So, uh, but it, they, she hasn't had that stage time and it's okay. Uh, that's okay. You know, I think it's okay. I mean, I agree with you. I think a lot of our boards are getting more substantive work done and that's really, really good. If you're a chair of something because you want to get up in front of people and you like the FaceTime, like the, you know, the exposure, like, hey, I'm chair and I get to do it. You're chairing for the wrong reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when people say to me, like, I'm so sorry we didn't have the annual conference, I'm like, who cares? Yeah. You know, I don't care. We're, we had a really great online conference. I don't even... I don't even think I did an introduction. I don't even remember. I don't, you know, I guess I did. I guess I did an introduction, but it doesn't matter because that's not why you're serving on a board or why you're chairing a board. You're, you're doing it because you're trying to kind of keep moving that needle and making things better. One final question. Mm-hmm. So our membership is largely the development investment folks who invest in these um, municipalities and do a lot of work, and you probably know most of it, not all of them. Uh, what advice would you give to them? And many of them already know you, you know, so they probably already have a, uh, a relationship, but maybe some of them uh, don't. What advice would you give them to how to contact you? Are you open to it? <laughs> I, I, meet, I meet with everybody who asks me to meet. That's that's my policy. If somebody asks to meet, I meet. So absolutely, they should. I have the admin office, you know, for the council. We, our clerk's office mm-hmm. handles all those calls and she'll set up the meeting for us. But yeah, I mean, absolutely. People should forge relationships. I mean, I think relationship building is really important. And, you know, when you come to Cary, you know, we're not trying to make it arduous for the sake of being arduous. We're not trying to make your life difficult. We just want to make sure, as we talked about before, that you're contributing back into the community and that when all said, you know, all is done and we can look back at it 15 years from now, we can say, job well done. This was really, really good. So if you're, you know, if you're coming in with that kind of approach, you're going to do really, really well in Cary. Actually, can I ask one more thing? You Sorry. Can. What's your favorite restaurant to eat at in Cary? <laughs> Did I mention I have four children? I don't need <laughs> out. <laughs> Oh, there you go. Well, two of them are gone. <laughs> two are gone. Yeah, I'm, I'm paying for college. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. 
they'll be, I mean, obviously I'll be paying for at least 16 years of college, but some of those years overlap. Wow. And I'm in the middle of it. So I don't eat out. Harris Teeter. Um, <laughs> peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. If I'm really feeling like I can splurge, I get a salmon from Harris Teeter. I don't, I don't eat out, but gosh, if I did, I actually going to relish up in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. I really love that restaurant. I think Carrie still has a ways to go with like developing its local food scene. Mm-hmm. So. Well, Jennifer, we really appreciate your time this, today. Yeah, thank you so show. much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Always this fun has talking been a with fun you. conversation. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, we'll see you on Policy Vibe. <laughs>